Hey guys, Tony Russo here. Just a brief show note. We recorded this at the DPR headquarters, which is not where we normally record. And about halfway through, uh, they came through and cut the grass. <laughs> so you're going to hear a little bit of buzzing from about 15 minutes to about 20 minutes. It's not awful, but it's something that I want you guys to know that we heard. But it's a really good conversation that's going on over it. So since we were able to leave it in on the podcast, we decided to. We had to cut it out for the radio. So um, enjoy the show. Hi, this is Stephanie Fallon. And this is Tony Russo. And you're listening to another episode of So What's Your Story? A podcast in which we talk to authors and writers about their writing, the stories behind the story, the writing process, and any other sort of miscellaneous writing stuff that we want to talk about. Today on the podcast, we have Jerry LaFemina, award-winning poet, fiction writer, professor, and musician. His new book is The Story of Ash, published by Anhinga Press, and he is the Associate Professor of English at Frostburg State University, and he's also mentor of the MFA program at Carlo University. Jerry's work has appeared in such notable outlets as American Fiction, the American Poetry Review, and the Gettysburg Review. Jerry has been the poet-in-residence for this year's Salisbury Poetry Week, which ran April 4th through April 9th, and he's here today to chat with us about it. So welcome to the podcast, Jerry. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you very much for coming here. Um, one of the things that I noticed when I started sort of doing my homework for the podcast with you was I looked and I saw, okay, poet, fiction writer, musician, and I thought that is an incredible blend of sort of genres. There's, I mean, for me personally, not a poet whatsoever and certainly not a musician. So I've really got like one, one, one leg to stand on in that boat. <laughs> but could you tell us a little bit about how that, I mean, how do you sort of kind of come to all those pieces? Yeah, I'm also an essayist, and I've written a couple of one-act plays, so I should. <laughs> um, Blessed with all the talents, I suppose. <laughs> no, it's all about um, it's all about loving language. Um, I fell in love with language at a very early age. My my mom uh, my mom worked three jobs, and so my father left when I was three, and there was no Head Start or things like that. So uh, I was dropped off at the Brooklyn Public Library at something that was uh, dubbed library school, and it was basically you know, uh, a bunch of kids whose uh, mothers or parents worked and um, the kids had to go someplace. And so I was surrounded by books at a very early age and I fell in love. I fell in love with language. I fell in love with stories. And for me, all of these things are about what you can do with language. Um, And there are forums that work better in one genre than another. So uh, I love the intensity of lyricism that a poem has that sort of just focus on a moment or that that sort of meditation on on an, uh, on an image or concept that poetry allows. Um, but I love a story. I love a great story, and that's where the fiction writing comes in. Um, and I was, a, I was terrible at dialogue when I was a young man, so that's where sort of writing plays came from to sort of capture how we talk to each other. And as a musician... Um, you know, I, I, I grew up in the United States listening to the radio. Um, I, some of my favorite moments are associated with song. Um, and I, and I, and I, song works so radically different than a poem that, that it's an interesting lesson in how to take something that works similarly in so many regards, but works different in so many others. Um, but it's all about everything comes back to the plasticity of language and, and the, the kind of um, 
sort of Play-Doh like consistency that language has done right. You can mold it into anything. And, uh, and, and I love that. And I love seeing what I can do with it. Uh, so now I'm, I'm working on a creative nonfiction project, um, which is part memoir, part philosophy, part Buddhist, um, understanding part riff on happiness. Wow. <laughs> you had uh, said how poems are different from from songs, and I think, I mean, the, the obvious thing is that the song has to match the music. You have a second voice in the music when you're when you're when you're writing a song. Um, but is that something that I'm making up in my head because that that's what occurred to me? <laughs> that's part of it. I, I mean, David Bowie. Uh, I heard David Bowie once on NPR, um, and. You know, the the NPR reporter said something like, you know, I want to talk about the poetry of your lyrics. And, and Bowie just said, no, stop there. I'm not a poet. Poets have to do all the work. Um, in a song, rhythm, keyboards, drums, guitar, uh, instrumentation, they do 50% of the work. And so I can, he said, so he, said, he basically said he could get away with, you know, Poor rhymes and stuff like this. Nobody's no people are paying attention to the lyrics uh, the way they would to a Tom Waits song, for instance. But simultaneously, <laughs> not only paying attention. But the other thing is, El Doctorow has a great essay called "Standards," in which he talks about the Great American Songbook. But this is true, I think, of all popular music, which is that the idea of a song is to get the audience to feel like they're in familiar territory, um, and pretty quickly. When I'm writing a song. I'm looking for something that gets people who haven't heard the song before to want to sing along. I'm looking, and that's that's part of that is melody, and part of that is lyric uh, content in that melody. Whereas the fundamental rule in poetry since the moderns is keep it new. Well, those are two very different rules, um, and so one of the things that I enjoy as a songwriter is simultaneously writing interesting lyrics while fusing a hook in there and getting people to sort of go, oh, I know exactly where I am, even when they aren't quite sure where they are. Um, well, that's always a difficult thing for me in in uh, in nonfiction is how how long do you leave the hook out? Like you have something, you're like, when they get to this part, they're really going to love it. And you want to put it in the front, but you're like, it's not it's not appropriate for the front. We have to hold it back a little bit. And finding that balance is always a challenge, I think, when whenever you have something where you're intentionally trying, you're not letting the reader just come along. You're trying to grab them and pull them along. Right, yeah. And, and in a poem, you want that hook to be really close to the end. You want that, that you know, in, in fiction, we talk about the epiphany, right, in a short story. Uh, in a poem, you want that, resonant image, that thing that makes people take their breath away. And Howard Nemiroff said that uh, a poem and a joke work similarly, but whereas a joke ends in laughter, a poem ends in silence. Um, and, and I love that idea. Um, in a song, the hook is doing something completely different, which is it's, 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 it's almost title and it's going to come back and it's going to wash over you again and again. And, um, you're going to want to get hit by that wave. If it's done right in a song, you're mm. going to want to get hit by that wave. Now, when you sort of 
uh, said, you know, when you were younger, you sort of fell in love with language. Was there a particular style that you fell in love with first? I mean, did you sort of fall in love with music and then that translate to poetry, which led to telling stories or, <laughs> or did these things sort of happen simultaneously? I'm just sort of interested in that sort of that, that soup. Um, I fell in love. The, the first book I fell in love with both, um, was a book called Space Cat, which was a, a children's book. When I, and I have, I have a copy of one of the 1960s edition Space Cat. Um, there were like five different books and these were, you know, I mean, it, it, the two things I loved cats in space, you know, right. I was like, how could I, how could I argue with that? And they were, there were these great books with great pictures. Um, great to my, you know, four year old self. Um, I had a great children's Bible that I loved. I love the stories of heroes and mythology. Um, when I was a kid, I read a lot, um, uh, mostly science fiction, fantasy, all of those things that I think a lot of people go to because they want to escape. Um, I, 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 I lived in a, in a relatively lower middle class, um, and, and, um, you know, uh, tough or early life. And, and, uh, I would escape. And, and even as a, as a young adolescent, I would, I would go, I would go to the used bookstore and I would buy all these, you know, dollar paperbacks or quarter paperbacks or whatever. And then I would read them all and then I would bring back all of them and trade them in. And eventually I, I you know, I moved to the James Bond books and other books. But most of my early reading was stuff that got me out of my life. Um, I was looking for that escape. And um, I started as a fiction writer. I mean, I, I mean, I wrote poems for girls. <laughs> that I was too scared to ask out. I was too scared to show them the poems, so it was really uh, an uh, you know sort of lesson in futility, which does me well as a poet, by the way. Um, <laughs> and um, but then uh, I didn't know how people talk to each other, which is really bad for fiction if you want to do it well. Um, so I wrote a lot of idea-driven fiction, sci-fi, horror, um, and I wrote. Uh, I wrote uh, am amazingly bad adolescent punk songs, um, but that were fun. I, 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 you know, I played CBGB. I, I played a lot of the New York punk clubs in the '80s. Uh, toured, um, had this great life, and I loved, I loved rock and roll. I loved lyrics, but even then, I, I, I didn't analyze how lyrics were written. Like I didn't understand the movement, the arc of a song. The, the story that you can have in a song and how those things worked. It was only after I fell in love with poetry um, my, 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 at the end of my freshman year in college that I really fell in love with poetry. Uh, a book came back. I was working at the college library and I, my band was going to go on tour and I was trying to make extra money and it was exam week and everybody was returning books. And that was great because it meant I was earning a paycheck. And this book came back. It was called Wrecking Crew by the poet Larry Levis. And, and I had read some contemporary American poetry and I had been hanging out with the poets because the poets were really the more interesting of the people in college. The fiction writers were too busy like studying the poets um, than, than to actually you know, sort of live like a poet. Um, and uh, this book came back and, and the first poem was a poem called The Poem You Asked For. It had the word shit in it. Um, and, and that's like the all-purpose swear word. You know, you could say shit. I don't know if you could say it on the radio, unfortunately, <laughs> but you can say it in front of like grandma and she kind of laughs. You know, you drop an F-bomb in front of grandma. You did not know she could pick up her cane and swing it, but she can. <laughs> she can. Um, 
But the the seventh or eighth poem in the book was this poem called Wound. I've loved you as a man loves an old wound picked up in a razor fight on a street nobody remembers. Look at him. Even in the dark, he touches it gently. And up until that point, up until I read that Larry Levis poem, you know, poems to me were like stopping by the woods on a snowy evening. And where I grew up, you didn't stop by the woods on a snowy evening. You stopped in, in Central Park at night. You got mugged. You didn't do it. This this was, you know, the 80s New York. It was, uh, you know, uh, it was an ugly time. And so uh, I thought poems had to be naturey. They had to be love poems. And this poem was about the stuff I knew, which was uh, heartache and, 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 a, and, a, and a threat of a kind of violence, which uh, was out my window. And suddenly it became apparent to me that everything I, I thought I knew about poetry was one, wrong, and two, I wanted to do it. I, I wanted to do it more than anything else. I fell in love with that poem and uh, everything I do when it comes to writing essays, and I write a lot of essays about poetry. I've written a textbook about poetry writing. Um, but everything I do is a way of feeding those poems. So so when I when I chose to write a novel or I chose to write short stories, it's one, because I have things that don't fit that sensibility. But the other thing is they teach me things about poetry that I wouldn't know if I hadn't written the novel. Um, and so for me, all of these things are part and parcel of being a poet. Um, you know, the Greeks didn't, the Greeks didn't say, yo, Plato, you're a creative nonfiction writer. Right. I'm sorry. It was all poetry. And... That, that capacity to use language to its fullest potential. That's what I'm interested in. Well, you, do you think that, how do you relate that to uh, the reading that you do? Like when you look at something for long enough, you start to see it come apart and you just start to see the pieces in it. And we were talking the other day about how when you are a reader as a kid, you just think in words differently, I think. And then when you, realize that there are, are are structures that you can use to your advantage, you can put them together that way. Um, do you do you think that, that that that's how you got your in it poetry and that's also how you can decide, oh, this isn't appropriate for a poem. This is this needs to be a, an essay or a, a fiction or a nonfiction. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. I think that um you know, I I love when I read something and it compels me to go, how, how'd she do that? I love that moment. I love when I want to deconstruct yeah. something. I, I tell my students all the time, like, you know, poetry is about manipulating language. And as soon as I were to use manipulating, they're like, I don't want to manipulate. It's like, oh, stop. Yes, you do. <laughs> you know, um, you, you write a love poem for somebody. You are choosing to be that language to generate a response, to elicit a response. Um, but manipulation doesn't mean bad. It just means, you know, working to get a desired effect. And, and you know, what does a painter do if not manipulate color and light? What does a musician do if not manipulate sound? And, you know, the difference between a, a, a B major chord and a B minor chord is significant. I played in a ska band and we once tried to write a song in a minor key. <laughs> ska in a minor key, 
does not sound good. There's no <laughs> way to make it sound good. <laughs> well, I think you you said something a moment ago that that kind of struck me, and that's about sort of contemporary poetry, and that you know, I think sometimes as a maybe a modern society, we come to the table and poetry is sort of this very formal thing. It's, you know, William Butler Yeats and it's, you know, Keats and it's, uh, you know, Robert Frost. And there's sort of these iconic sort of canon pieces, right? But then you get, you're saying, you know, the way that you kind of fell in love with poetry, maybe not necessarily through the quote unquote greats, but through someone who was expressing something that was deeply relatable to you at the time. And it just sort of seems like maybe if contemporary poetry maybe was presented to audiences in a different way, maybe it would be sort of not this sort of hard to enter, you know, hard to walk through door. Maybe it's a little different. Oh, hell yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I mean, I often say that poetry is often taught in units and nothing good is ever taught in units. Um, Or the other thing I always say is this, if we taught sitcoms the way we teach poetry, Nobody would ever watch television again. I mean, I mean, think about it. You know, obviously, at this moment in this episode of uh, you know Two Broke Girls, it is a it is an allusion to the Great Odd Couple episode in which you know people would be like, "What? I don't don't talk to me about that. I just want to enjoy the show." I mean, um, you know, we we emphasize things like you know you got to learn iambic pentameter and not. Listen to how beautiful this is. Um, we and we surely don't teach music that way, right? I mean, I mean, nobody's sitting there going, you know what? Like my my students will say to me, I'll say, what poets do you like? And they'll go, I like Edgar Allan Poe. If I said, what music do you like? Nobody says, I like mid nineteenth century lute music. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no one's no one's going. No one's go to as you know Mozart today, right? Yeah, yeah. But even let's not say Mozart. Mozart was a genius. Let's find some popular song balladeer from the mid nineteenth century. Nobody knows them. <laughs> when. You just you just rang my bell. I just want to bring it back again to to the language. When you learn to play an instrument, um, you learn very 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 basic things, and then as you progress, you learn backwards. Like I remember, as I got to be, uh, I, I learned piano when I was little, and as I got to be older and I started to take theory, I saw backwards, and I'm like, this whole time I've known how to move chords and how to make these and how to restructure a, a chord to make it the same someplace else. And it's the same, I think, once you get that, once you once you realize that you can do things with words if you just relax and enjoy yourself rather than trying to take it apart. Right. And and often we're, we're taught, you know, in, in schools, uh, you know, I remember, I remember, you know, reading what is a great poem? Undeniably, uh, Robert Frost stopped by the woods on a snowy evening. Whose woods these are, I think I know. His house is in the village, though. And uh, The woods are lovely, dark, and deep, but I have promises to keep in miles to go before I sleep and miles to go before I sleep. And I remember learning that in high school, and the teacher said, what's this poem about? And one of my classmates said, it's about being really tired and going home and just stopping because it's quiet. And the teacher said, no, the poem's about death. (laughs) 
And you read that poem, those 16 lines, the word death doesn't appear in the poem. And what that did is it totally disavowed the idea that what words say in a poem are what words mean. Is there a symbolic or metaphoric meaning to stopping by the woods on a snowy evening? Undoubtedly. But is that what the poem is about? No, the poem is about being really tired, going home, and seeing some beauty and thinking, I wish I could stay in this beauty for a little bit longer. And who hasn't had that moment? Because you know, home is gonna be chaotic and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, there have been lots of biographical interpretations that this poem Frost wrote, he was poor, he was going back for Christmas, he didn't have any Christmas presents and he was kind of avoiding it. But biography aside, et cetera, et cetera, the poem really captures what I think is a fundamental truth. That sometimes when you're going home and you've had a long day, whatever the cause of that long day was, and you recognize that being at home can sometimes feel like a long day too, who doesn't want this moment of peace and solitude? You were mentioning uh, stopping by the woods on a snowy evening, and I like to think about it like apocalyptically, like in a million years, you're going to find the poem and it's not going, it's not going to be canon. It's all by itself. But if you look at anything long enough, eventually you want to assign like a deeper meaning to it. But that's something that I think has to come naturally. You can't sure. say, read this and assign a deeper meaning, <laughs> you know, yeah. and just so read it and enjoy it. And then it will, it will eventually inspire you and you won't even know it until it's too late. You'll be like, oh, I just got that. And can you imagine if, if we said, you know, okay, here's this uh, Kesha song. Let's talk about the deeper meaning of TikTok. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, we'd be like, oh, my God. Um, no, I no, that's true. And, and the other thing is this, is that the deeper meaning I get from a poem, you might get a very different deeper meaning from the poem. And, and as long as the text permits that reading of it, how is it or why is it wrong? But this is the concern about how poetry is taught. It's taught as you a poem, if a sonnet is 14 lines, an iambic pentameter with this rhyme scheme, and it's got this turn, as opposed to a sonnet is a beautiful expression of often love. Mm. And it uses this form. But let's talk about just the beauty of this language. Um, we take the fun out of it. We take the beauty out of it when we teach it that way. Um, I love starting classes by just reading poems. Tell my students, just listen, just listen. It's a good poem, good art of any sort, good song, a good meal, because I'm a firm believer cooking is, is a high art form. A good painting says, pay attention to me. Mm. And we lose sight of that. and. I also think what you said about, Tony, what you said about sort of going backwards, you know, we teach kids a sonnet. You know, we teach them Shakespeare. And, and the kid's like, I don't understand this language. I don't like, Why are we starting there? As opposed to here's a poem that you might identify with. Right. Which I think is so important. Um, you know, why, is, why, is, why, why was hip hop so important to uh, urban black communities in the end was because suddenly people were hearing about their lives and they, they could see themselves in the narratives of those songs. And I think that's what's missing too, is that by starting with this canon, 
we we start at a place that students can't step into those lives and they can't enjoy it exactly uh and the other thing you mentioned about you know finding stop by the woods on a snowy evening you know i'm mean, thinking about how we found fragments of sappho or you know, uh, when uh, Catullus was first translated into English and they realized how bawdy he yeah. was. <laughs> and so he was censored and the, those books were not allowed out to be published for a long time. Um, yeah, I mean, those poems did not exist canonically. But they they still found their, they their found way their audience out. And, and, and so glad they did. And you had mentioned a moment ago uh, teaching kids. And so you're here for the uh, Salisbury Poetry Week. Yep. And you're working with uh, young young people here in Salisbury. And I'm, so I'm working with middle school kids and high school kids and senior citizens, what I like to call the big, big kids. <laughs> um, and, um, yeah, no, I love working with I, I love working with, with children. I ran a program for high school kids um, for 15 years in northern Michigan, um, getting kids out into the woods to write poems and fiction. Um, and that was an amazing experience. And I think that young kids, middle school kids and elementary school kids, they have great imaginations. And they're often told, stop being imaginative, be practical. Um, and so they, they allow that wildness to be free. High school kids have all the emotion. They, they, they are, you know, they are um, a shaken up soda can of hormones. Um, and, and what you do when you get them to write and, and you give them the freedom is you pop open that can and you let it spill over and, and you get this great, wonderful, flavorful, sticky mess of a poem. Um, and, and uh, I, you know, I do, I do a lot of work with senior citizens. I love working with older people because they have the experience and they have those, those really vivid memories that suddenly they want to get down. Um, so, so each age group I'm be working with uh, presents an exciting opportunity of uh, of of ex of working with different aspects of the creative process and, and of what language can do. Yeah, and I think it's a really incredible opportunity for you know students in in both middle school, high school, and also the people here to you know have the opportunity to work with someone like you who has this you know, love of language. And of course you've got the credentials behind it, but it sounds like your real focus when you're working with people is to sort of make them fall in love with it or to, or to bring, to show them they can love it. Yeah. I want them to fall in love with it. Um, I want them to fall in love with the process, not with what they have to say, but that idea that they'll find something to say if they trust the process. That is the first thing. And the second thing I want them to do is feel like their voice is valid. So many people I work with have felt that their voices have been invalid. You know, I mean, what voice does a middle school student have in their family? Often none. In their, you know, in their classroom, often none. And here's a chance to have it. Um, so, so I think that that that's part of it. And and the last thing. Um, Oh, I, I forgot what the last thing is. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. I'm, I'm, I'm ready for you because you said something to her that I want to say back at you. Um, when you talk about discovering something in your writing, like as you're going through it, and you surprise yourself with your word selection, or you you find you find meaning in 
uh, one of your own works that not only didn't you intend, but then you're kind of like self-inspired by you get to the, for, for me, it happens when, when I find out that I did have a theme all along, I get to the end and I'm like, Hey, look, this makes sense. Right. And uh, can you, can you talk a little bit about helping, helping people to find out that if they just put it down, it might just, it might speak to them later, I guess. Yeah. I, I think this, that, that what you're trying to teach people is your obsessions are your obsessions, right? They're, they're, you're stuck with them. <laughs> Whatever, whatever the, the, the themes of your life are at that moment, and they change depending on where you are in life, you, they're there. They can't help but be there. Um, and so rather than sort of force them into something, which is like, I want to write about, you know, how mean my kids are to me. Um, you don't have to. You don't have to. You write about something else. And that that the flavor of your obsessions will will trickle up. They can't help but do that. Yeah. And and I I think that that's like the real difference between writing a poem or writing a story or writing nonfiction and writing, you know, a letter to your editor. Right. Uh, on which you your agenda is pretty clear. Um I I love the attention to detail. Because the details you choose are saying something about your state of mind, your your uh, spiritual state, your emotional state, that doesn't need to be overtly expressed. Mm. And I think learning to ask the sound and sight questions to yourself is something that can help you move along. Um, I was speaking with a, a gentleman earlier and he was telling a story and it was a good story that he wasn't telling well. And I, all you had to say was, was it summer? Right? And you just, oh yeah, it was really hot. And then all of a sudden, now there's a blue sky and now he's sweating and now it's so bright. And all you give them one word that says, bring color into this and they're ready to bring the color and they just need to be invited. Right. And the other thing is, is that, you know, I mean, uh, you know, we, 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 I always talk about the use of images, right? William Carlos Williams idea. There's no idea, but in things, and we think image, we think visual. Well, we have four other senses actually, <laughs> um, as the lawnmower reminded us of, um, that, you know, uh, smell, touch, taste how do you get those things in there um you know uh I, I think of you know the sort of you know summer to me is always that kind of taste of sulfur in the air on july 5th or the taste of bomb pops right like mm -hmm. like what are the tastes of summer not just or not just the blue sky and the visual image and the, the sweat which is a very physical image but the other the other images too the other sensory perceptions that i think are so important and how so much of writing is world building but it's the world of you know it's it's setting this world to say we're going to live in it on the page together and and we're going to commune in it i mean for me poetry in the end is, is or, or all writing in the end, the best writing and best art in general is is an act of communion in the way, I, in in the very same way that taking Eucharist in a Catholic church is an act of communion. It is we are in community together, joining at this level of idea and emotion and spirituality 
via this language on the page. And I, I want to switch gears real quick because I wanted, I always like to ask people who write plays about this because it drives me insane. Um, another part that all good art has is, is an honesty and an authenticity. You mentioned that you had trouble with dialogue. I have never written five long lines of dialogue in a row that didn't sound like they were made up and poorly. <laughs> <laughs> and and I don't know if they would read that way to someone else, but they read that way to me. It's it's like, well, people do talk this way, but I just don't. I can't make myself feel it often. And and I, I imagine you must have had a similar problem if if that's if you pushed through by becoming a playwright. Um, yeah, uh, you know, when I was in college, you know, when I, I went to college to be a fiction writer, I mentioned, you know, when I was in college, my conversations went like this. Hey, did you get the new Fishbone record? Yeah, I got the new Fishbone record. What'd you think? I thought it rocked. Yeah, it did rock. <laughs> you try to base a short story around that dialogue, it's going to fall pretty flat pretty quickly. I mean, you know, um, but the language in good dialogue, whether it's fiction or creative nonfiction in which you are remaking conversations or in a play, is not meant to sound banal, and it's not meant to sound like people talk. It's really supposed to sound like the way we wish people talked, which is comfortable and casual, but also willing to be vulnerable. In a play, Dialogue has to do so much more. Yeah. Like, you know, you have to do things like, would you stop your pacing? Because that's a stage direction. The other character is pacing. You only know that reading the play by that dialogue. It's the only way for the director to know what's happening. So sometimes in a play in particular, you're doing more with dialogue because you have to respond to what you are imagining the visual mm. cues are. Um, stop your fidgeting. Oh, okay. So we know the other character was fidgeting. Um, and, and you wouldn't put that in, uh, in a story, right? In a story, you, you might, you, you might, uh, say, you know, Joe put his hand on, you know, Patricia's uh, arm to get her to stop, right? Mm. Like you would do that in another way. Maybe you would do it in a stage direction. I guess you could do it that way too. But dialogue in, in drama does so much more, um, uh, than just project a story. and But I think that, you know, the plays I've written um, have all been short uh, because I don't think I could sustain that much <laughs> dialogue. Um, they're all about 10, 12 minutes. I, I, I actually have this vision of, of having um, like 10, 10-minute 10 plays all about relationships in which the, the actors play different roles in different plays. Um but the, but the goal is always there's that great moment in Annie Hall and and I know Woody Allen is is a little poo pooed these days but a genius and and at the end of Annie Hall he of course plays Alvy Singer who's a playwright and and um, he says. Uh, he's written a play about his relationship with Annie and ends up with a happy ending unlike the story of of Annie and Alvy and he says. What do you expect? It was my first play. Like you, right. know, you, you have to learn how to how to give up the the control of the world. That often is what gets us into writing because we feel like we have so little control of the world. Like it's like the great irony of being a good writer is that 
you go to writing often because you want to remake the world in a way that you feel like it's fair, it's just, you want to express what's inexpressible, and then you simultaneously realize that that's the hardship of it, that you actually have to give up control to come to understanding. And that's almost like circling back to how we come to writing in the first place is we read and we escape our world and then we decide to write so that we can recreate things that maybe we want how we want them to be or remake them in an image that seems right for us. Yeah. And then ultimately that often feels cheap. It feels false. <laughs> <laughs> it feels it feels absolutely false and you have to you have to be real, which is not nearly as as satisfying as you thought it would be when you sat down no but we keep trying (laughs) (laughs) but you know it's not as satisfying but i feel so much better having worked through the process i think that's like the, the amazing thing is that yeah the world is a complicated messy place and and we get hurt etc but recognizing that on this page, you and I are coming together. It makes it all like I'm not in this alone, and I think I think it's really easy to think we are in it alone. Yeah, it's almost like in a way. Sometimes Tony and I have talked about it. Is that the process itself is an exercise, and sometimes it's just an exercise in getting out the poison so that you can kind of move past it and, and get to the next point. Sure, but if you think about the the process of cooking, right? The process of cooking is often lonely. It's often frustrating. It's often messy. It's often frustrating. But when you sit down at the table with everybody and and you're all having a good meal, it's damn satisfying. Yeah. Well, now, Stephanie, this is the part of the show where you thank the guest. Well, Jerry, thank you so much for being on the podcast and sharing with us today. Well, thank you, Stephanie. And we'd also like to give a special thank you to the Franklin P. and Arthur W. Purdue Foundation, the Salisbury Wacomico Arts Foundation, as well as the Lower Eastern Shore Chapter of the Maryland Writers Association for sponsoring Salisbury Poetry Week. So What's Your Story was recorded at Saltwater Media, an indie book publisher in Berlin, Maryland. Visit us at SoWhatsYourStoryPodcast.com, where you can find past episodes, show notes, bios, and all sorts of fun stuff. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or Radio Public. And if you like the show, feel free to leave us a great review. Tell your story.